One of the earliest lessons I learned as a child was, if you looked away from something, it might not be there when you looked back. John Edgar Weidman Welcome back to Dead and Gone in Wyoming, a monthly podcast telling the stories of this remarkable state's most enduring murders and disappearances. A quick content note before we get started. This episode of Dead and Gone in Wyoming contains graphic depictions of disturbing events related to murder and disappearance. As always, listener discretion is advised. On this episode, a strange garage sale find leads to unanswered questions in a decades-old mystery. But first, Laramie in the 80s was a relatively quiet and crime-free college town until the fall of 1985, when violent events would shake the UW campus like never before or since. Part 1. The Co-Ed Killer In Arizona in 1986, two fathers lost their sons, and neither father knew why. One of the man's sons killed the others on August 13, 1986, inside a Flagstaff motel room. There was no friction between the two, no escalation. The young men were friends, actually on a trip together from the East Coast. And to this day, nobody knows the reason that Jacob Weidman, who was 18 years old at the time, killed 16-year-old Eric Kane. Not even Jacob. All he ever said about the killing was it wasn't premeditated, and that his friend's death was just, quote, the buildup of a lot of different emotions, unquote. Weidman pleaded guilty to the murder of Eric Kane in 1988 and was sentenced to life in prison. It was only then, after he was locked up, that Jacob Weidman began telling another story to the authorities in Arizona, a different story of a different murder in another state. It happened in Wyoming, Jacob said. Jacob Weidman happens to have been the son of a prominent African-American author named John Edgar Weidman. The Elder Weidman is a remarkable man, and I want to state right up front that Jacob's father is more or less irrelevant to the telling of his son's story and the people that his son claims to have killed, at least as irrelevant as a father-son relationship can be in relation to such things anyway. But the father, the author, John Edgar Weidman's own story is pretty unique and exceptional. John studied 18th century British fiction at Oxford before studying under the tutelage of Kurt Vonnegut and other literary notables. No less than the New York Times has said, in fact, that John Edgar Weidman is one of America's premier writers of fiction. He was also an excellent basketball player. He is a member of the University of Pennsylvania Athletics Hall of Fame, where he played on the same team as future NBA star and United States Senator Bill Bradley. John Weidman joined the faculty at the University of Wyoming in 1975. Shortly after this, his daughter Jamila was born to he and his wife Judith. But Judith's pregnancy experienced several complications. 
and ultimately Jamila was born two months premature in Denver after being transported by ambulance. Fortunately, Jamila survived the experience and, by the way, would grow up to play professional basketball herself for four different WNBA teams. But when John and Judith returned to Laramie following Jamila's birth, other family problems followed. John learned that his younger brother, Robert, was a fugitive after being involved in a robbery that went awry in the family's hometown neighborhood in Pittsburgh. A woman had been shot during the robbery by one of Robert's accomplices, and the woman later died. Robert and the other men fled Pennsylvania for Wyoming, where John Weidman sheltered them for a night in his house. And after the men were caught in Colorado, John was accused of aiding and abetting a fugitive, but no charges were filed. Even though he hadn't been the actual shooter, John's brother Robert was also found guilty of murder at a trial and sentenced in the woman's death to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Although, just last summer, having served 40 years in prison, Robert Weidman's sentence was commuted and he was released on July 2, 2019. His brother's ordeals were later used as inspiration for John in what is arguably among his best writings. But the Weidman's time in Wyoming was over at that point. In 1986, the family left Laramie for Massachusetts. And that was the year that John's son, Jacob Weidman, murdered Eric Kane on a camping trip to Arizona. Jacob then fled the state and called his parents. John and Judith urged their son to turn himself in, and he did. A judge allowed Jacob to be released to his parents' custody, and he was returned to a psychiatric facility in Massachusetts. Once there, Jacob called the police in Arizona to confess his guilt in the murder of Eric Kane. A plea bargain was struck in the death, and Jacob was sentenced to life in prison with a possibility for parole after 25 years. And that was that, for a while, at least. Shelley Wiley was a 22-year-old student at the University of Wyoming and living in Laramie in 1985. A graduate of Laramie High School in 1981, Shelley was working her way through school as a waitress at a hotel-restaurant complex just a block away from her apartment. And Shelley's family, her parents, two brothers, and a sister, all lived in Laramie as well. Shelley didn't have any enemies, no jealous boyfriends or angry exes, according to her friends. But at 5.24 a.m. on Sunday, October 20th, 1985, fire crews responded to Shelley's apartment building. After containing the blaze, Shelley was found dead inside the living room of her apartment unit. But the fire hadn't killed her, and that she had been instead murdered by other means was evident right away. In fact, Shelley's wounds were such that the responding firefighters knew, even while they were still fighting the fire, that something else, someone else, had killed Shelley. They could see the blood, for one thing. Shelley Wiley had been sexually assaulted, struck in the head, stabbed 11 times with a paring knife, doused with an accelerant of some kind, and her body set on fire. Due to the damage caused by the flames, it wasn't clear at the autopsy at which point in this horrific ordeal Shelley would have died. Police believed early on that something might have happened to Shelley outside of her apartment first. Drag marks were found 40 feet away, leading to her front door. 
A single unidentified fingerprint from Shelley's apartment door was sent to the state crime lab for analysis. A neighbor told police she'd heard screams coming from Shelley's unit about 15 minutes before the fire was set. It was also determined that an undisclosed amount of money was missing. Shelley lived in the apartment with a female roommate, who'd thankfully been away for that weekend. It was the first murder in Laramie in nearly six years. A few weeks after Shelley's murder, and just three blocks away, an 18-year-old woman was sitting in her parked car late one night. On exiting her car and walking toward her residence, she was attacked. The woman later described her attacker as a man about 5 foot 9 inches tall. The man had placed a burlap sack over the woman's head before attempting to drag her into the backyard. The woman managed to escape, relatively unharmed, and called police. And if Shelley's murder hadn't already, the second attack of a young woman in West Laramie brought an unusually heightened awareness to the community. On the UW campus, a so-called escort service was formed, comprised of young men who would volunteer to walk female classmates home after dark. While in police custody after being arrested for killing his friend Eric Kane on that camping trip in Arizona, Jacob Weidman confessed to killing Shelley Wiley in Laramie. Jacob had not been asked about the Wiley case. His confession had been entirely unsolicited. And he said there was another person involved in the crime, another teenager named Angelo Garcia. Jacob said he'd been the one to rape and stab Shelley and that Angelo Garcia had struck her over the head and set the body on fire. Police couldn't believe their luck, in one sense, but for some investigators, this was literally the case. Some didn't believe it. Again, Jacob was 15 at the time, with no prior criminal history, and certainly not a violent one. There was also no known connection between Jacob Weidman and Shelley, aside from Shelley being a university student and Jacob's father being a professor there. It's not as though co-eds were disappearing from Laramie on a regular basis. Women were not often ambushed from their cars walking to their front door. And women were certainly not raped, stabbed, bludgeoned, and then their bodies set on fire with any frequency in the quiet Wyoming college town. And this 15-year-old, this son of a prominent member of the community, he's the one to have done all or some of these? And sure enough, Jacob recanted his confession soon after making it, saying he only confessed in the first place to get some attention. In 1991, prosecutors acknowledged they didn't have enough evidence to go forward, and charges against Jacob Weidman for Shelley Wiley's murder were dropped. And prosecutors also were forced to drop the murder charges they'd brought against Angelo Garcia. Decades have ticked by since. But there remains a glimmer of hope in that Shelley Wiley case due to some solid police work at the scene back in 1985. A blood sample was collected. Two different types of blood, actually. And at least one of those blood samples is not Shelley Wiley's. Nor is it Jacob Weidman's or Angelo Garcia's. Police have also used that blood sample to rule out a convicted serial rapist who's in prison in Utah. It is believed that Shelley's killer or killers was or were injured during the attack and that one of those blood samples probably belongs to one of the people or the person who killed Shelley and then set her body on fire 
one early morning in October 1985. Thirty years after Jacob Weidman killed Eric Kane in that Arizona motel room, in October 2016, a 67-year-old maintenance worker at a correctional facility in Wyoming received a surprise visit from cold case investigators. Fred Lamb was arrested on the spot for Shelley Wiley's murder. Frederick J. Lamb had once been a Laramie City police officer and had actually been a sheriff's deputy for 11 years up to the point that Shelley Wiley was killed. Although we should point out he was not with the sheriff's department at the time of Shelley's murder. He'd been staying in her apartment building that night, but that was just a coincidence, he said. So were a lot of other people. And oh yeah, that blood that police say they found on his apartment door that night, that was his, he told investigators. He'd simply cut himself. Fred Lamb pleaded not guilty to the charges against him. We've become so accustomed lately to news stories like this one. They are remarkable, really. Science and technology have evolved exponentially to this point that we're at now, where it doesn't matter how long ago you killed someone, 10, 20, 50 years ago. If police at the time saved some key evidence, it's extremely likely that one way or another, you will be linked to the case. And you'll have to explain to police what you long ago became convinced you never would. Why your blood was inside the apartment where a young woman's tortured corpse had been set on fire, for example. For those like myself who have vested interest in seeing such cold cases fall, each one of these that we hear about seems to be like a domino in the line, one dropping after another toward answers in these cases that police who've worked on them over the years, have probably thought would never be solved. But I'm sorry to say that Shelley Wiley's case does not appear to be one of them. You see, five months after his arrest, January 9, 2017, Frederick J. Lamb was released from custody, and the murder charges against him dropped. Although prosecutors said at the time they intended on refiling those charges when further expert examination of the evidence is finished, that was almost three years ago. And those charges have yet to be refiled against Lamb. Makes you wonder why, obviously, but, but you won't get any speculation from me, not on this one. This one's too close to being resolved, it seems like, feels like it is anyway, but apparently not close enough. Not yet. So now three different people have been arrested and charged with Shelley Wiley's murder more than 30 years ago, and all three have seen those charges dropped for lack of evidence. Dead and Gone in Wyoming is made possible by the Hampton Inn and Suites in Riverton, Wyoming. Riverton is a gateway to adventure located right in the middle of the Cowboy State. It's a hub for experiencing the best the state has to offer. Attractions like Yellowstone and the Tetons, world-class skiing, mountain recreation, casino gaming, cultural and historical sites on and around the Wind River Reservation. Riverton has the best access to one of the best states in the country, and when you're visiting, you'll want to stay at the best. The Hampton Inn and Suites is conveniently located, serves a free hot breakfast too. Make plans to stay at the Hampton Inn and Suites in Riverton, Wyoming, 
and feel the Hamptonality. Part 2. The Box of Bones The bones were for sale. They were among the leftovers from the attic in the basement, among some furniture over here, a rack of men's and women's evening wear over there. The box was really more like a small trunk. was locked. A small padlock, for which there was no longer a key, held closed to the contents within. Oklahoma sunshine bore down on the yard sale. It's just like any other yard sale then or now. This one taking place in the early 80s. A man bought the trunk that day. He couldn't remember later how much he paid for the box of bones. But he never saw them. He never looked inside. He never broke the lock. Or so he says. And so the bones were put away once more. And they were forgotten for some time. Resting still inside that trunk, which had now found its way to Thermopolis, Wyoming. The shed was given as a gift to Newell Sessions by one of his friends, and so were the bones, though Newell didn't know it. He wouldn't know it for more than five years. That's how far down Newell's to-do list cleaning out that old shed slipped to before the retired handyman finally got to check that one off the list. And when he did... When Newell finally dragged that chest out of the shed, he popped the padlock right off of it, and the bones saw daylight once more. But really, how hadn't the man who bought the trunk never done the same? He'd never popped that lock off? He'd never opened the trunk that he'd bought? That's what the Hot Springs County Sheriff wanted to know, too, right about then. And he flew to Dallas to meet with that previous owner of those bones a man named John Morris. For two hours at their meeting, Morris swore up and down he had no earthly idea what was inside that garage sale purchase of his, and the sheriff did not believe him. But the sheriff also had no proof. There was no connection between Morris and the victim. And there wouldn't have been, would there? The bones were nameless. Nobody knew who the bones were. Or had been. Nobody knew who those bones had been. And if this were a case of murder, if you don't know who's been murdered, you can't very well arrest anyone for it. The Wyoming State Crime Lab used the victim's skull to recreate an image of what would be the man's face, and they released that composite likeness of the man in the box to the media. The popular television series Unsolved Mysteries also ran a feature on the case in 1993. So police had bones, and very little to go on. But at least they had a little. The bones belonged to a white man between the ages of 35 and 50 years old. He'd been killed 45 to 70 years previous to 1992 by a single 25 caliber bullet to the head. They even could tell what kind of gun was used, a Colt model handgun that was manufactured in the early 30s. They could also tell that the remains had been buried previously before being dug up and then stashed away in that trunk. But that's all that police knew. More than 600 calls came in after the Unsolved Mysteries episode aired nationally on NBC. Every single one of those calls turned out to be fruitless. Those folks at the Wyoming Dinosaur Center in Thermopolis, those bones that they deal with, at least they know where they belong. 
This fossil is a six-inch tooth of a T-Rex. This fossil is a tiny thumb of a Hypsilophodon. But police there didn't know who this box of human bones belonged to. And an already decades-old murder went cold, if it had been investigated at all in the first place. Shelley Statler had her grandfather on her mind when she decided in 2017 to share her family's DNA with the police. Familial DNA is a massive tidal wave, which is right now breaking onto the shores of cold case criminal investigation as we speak. It's used to create new leads in these cases where DNA evidence is found at the scene, but there is no match. It was first used to solve a murder in the UK in 2003. And it's been used to solve countless murders since, including some very high-profile cases. Here's basically how it works. Let's say your second cousin, who you've never met, killed somebody 10 years ago. Your cousin's DNA was recovered at the crime scene, but it's never been matched up to your cousin because his DNA profile isn't in any criminal database. When you choose to upload your DNA into a public DNA database, these exist now, and some are strictly private, but some are public and available to law enforcement. If you upload your own DNA, then police can search for that similarity between your DNA profile and the profile they have from your distant relative from the murder scene 10 years ago, in our example. Once some of those markers are found to be the same from your profile, investigators can basically go on an ancestor hunt. They can go along your family tree until they find from you, through your relatives, your cousin, whose DNA profile, of course, will match 100%, the one that they're looking for. And all of this happens while you, as the person who submitted the DNA to the database, and you may never know that your DNA helped solve a murder. Well, in the early 1960s, Shelley Statler's grandfather died under mysterious circumstances. The family has always talked about it and rumored about what might have happened to Shelley's grandfather. And hearing about these advancements in familial DNA and how criminal investigators are using this more and more to solve cold cases, Shelley Statler of Waukee, Iowa, contacted authorities in Wyoming. She told them that she thought the facial composite that had been generated by computer back in the 90s from that skull found in the box, it looked something like some members of her family. And police agreed, and they asked her to provide a DNA sample. And that's how authorities were able to identify the box of bones as, once, Joseph Mulvaney, who was born in 1921 in Mattoon, Illinois. The box of bones found in Thermopolis had once been Joseph Mulvaney, who'd spent all of his childhood in rural Illinois. And an eventful childhood it was. In 1939, when he was 18, Joseph was trapped following a cave-in on a hillside by rock and mud. It was loosened after a rainstorm. He nearly died and would have, but for his two classmates, who dug Joseph out of rock and rubble for nearly an hour to free him, and then dragged him unconscious from the hillside and rode his badly injured body back to safety. In 1941, when he was 20, enlisted in the National Guard. Of course, just in time for the United States' involvement in World War II, following the Japanese attack on Hawaii at the end of that same year. So he spent the first six months overseas in Australia before being hospitalized there with an undisclosed stomach ailment. Near the end of the war, in June 1945, Joseph had become a sergeant as a technician and was serving in the Pacific Theater when his mother, Catherine, passed away 
in the sanitarium where she'd been a patient for some time. She was 50 years old. Joseph was 24 then. After the end of the war, Joseph received a discharge from the army and returned home. The woman he chose to marry killed him 15 years later. At least that's what Shelley Statler, Joseph's granddaughter, thinks happened. Shelley says her grandmother and her then 16-year-old uncle conspired to shoot Joseph J. Mulvaney, and that's what they did in 1960, before burying his body on family property, only to resurrect the remains and stuff them away in that trunk. The trunk of bones that were put out for yard sale 20 years later and that were discovered in Wyoming for the first time 10 years after that. More than 30 years after his death, Joseph's remains had somehow traveled from Illinois to Oklahoma to Wyoming in a box. Nobody knows exactly how that trunk ended up in Oklahoma, and to be clear, nobody can say for sure that Joseph J. Mulvaney was shot and killed by his own wife. But at least now we know who he was. And we know what happened to him, if not exactly by whom or for what reasons. Earlier this year, Joseph J. Mulvaney was honored in a military ceremony in Cody, Wyoming, for his service in the Philippines and elsewhere during World War II. The lesson to the story of the Thermopolis box of bones, if there is a lesson, always open the lock. Thank you for listening to this month's episode of Dead and Gone in Wyoming. And thank you, too, for subscribing and rating the podcast on whatever platform you use to listen. It does greatly help others find the show. And can you think of a friend who might enjoy these two stories we told today? And if you can, share it with them. Do us a favor by telling them about the podcast personally. Even show them how to listen, if need be. As word of mouth by someone who shares your interest is the best promotion of all. Our brand new Patreon supporter, Kim, sends this message. Merry Christmas from the Idaho region. I love this podcast. Happy New Year. Thank you, Kim, and to you and yours as well. Kim is the latest person to support the podcast on Patreon. This allows for the continuation of the show, so if you find some value in our stories and you're able to support us on Patreon, patreon that way then you can google dead and gone in wyoming or go directly to patreon.com slash wyoming podcast that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash wyoming podcast and remember when we get to 100 supporters i'll be hosting that meet and greet event in person free for our patreon supporters in wyoming and i'm already looking forward to that Thanks to the listener who suggested the first case in this episode, the Shelley Wiley murder that did come from one of you guys. You can reach out to me for the show as well as for feedback, episode suggestions, or just to say hi via email, wyomingpodcast at gmail.com. And similarly, on Twitter, you can follow the show and interact with me there at wyomingpodcast on Twitter. Sad to say that our time together has come and gone for the month and for the year, but we will be back, of course. Thank you for your support, as well as that of the great people at the Hampton Inn and Suites in Riverton, Wyoming. So for Amanda Faring, Terry Wiblamo, Jared Anderson, Amanda Goddard, and Will Hill at County 10, I'm Scott Fuller, already looking forward to bringing you the next episode in a new year of Dead and Gone in Wyoming.
Hey there. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Dead and Gone in Wyoming. In fact, I'm confident you did. Scott Fuller does a phenomenal job. This awkward voice you're hearing at the end of your podcast is Jared Anderson. That's me. I'm the program director at the 10Cast Network located in Riverton, Wyoming. Thank you for listening to Dead and Gone in Wyoming, supporting it, subscribing, rating, and reviewing. It is by far our most listened to and most popular show. Now, I know a lot of you who subscribe to this show may not necessarily live in Wyoming, which is phenomenal, and I'm glad uh, you're paying attention to something based on our little state that uh, you like listening to. But for those of you that do have connections to Wyoming or live in the state, I want to let you know real quick, the 10Cast Network has nine other Wyoming-based shows and will add two new shows in early 2020. Follow more Wyoming podcasts by liking 10Cast on Facebook or logging on to the Fremont County Wyoming news stream website, county10.com and clicking the big round podcast tab. Thanks to the Hampton Inn and Suites in Riverton for making Dead and Gun in Wyoming possible. And a big shout out to our studio sponsor, which is Porter's Supply Company located in Riverton, Wyoming. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.